You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK director David Leach. David, I do trust you are well. I'm well, Giles. I trust all our listeners are are well and following the uh, amazing uh, world of electricity, which uh, seems, at least in Southeast Asia, to be moving in uh, the right direction for once. Well, look, I think so, and I don't want to sort of correct your geographic sense, but it's probably just southeastern, eastern, and North Asia as well. Um, we've certainly seen a lot of moves over the last week or two of um, three of Australia's significant uh, importers of fossil fuels declaring that they're headed towards net zero emissions by 2050, or in the case of 2060. And I guess we'll come to the response of Australia later on, but. Um, I think, David, that's a very good prompt for an interview that uh, you did earlier today with um, Runa Kui, I think, from the University of Maryland and one of the um, foremost China coal experts. Yes, uh, we did do that, Giles. And uh, let's listen to uh, Runa without too much further ado. Uh, ado. Uh, The point I wanted to make is that, uh, you know, she's not only a, a wonderful student of the topic, and with a deep knowledge, but also has some fantastic data on on the generation gen, coal generation there. But let's let's listen to Rena. Uh, so welcome to uh, Rena Kui, who's the research scholar at the Centre for Global Sustainability, uh, a school of public policy at the University of uh, Maryland. Rena, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hello, David. Uh, thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here today, and uh, we're thrilled that you can be on. Uh, your uh, special topic, so to speak, is 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 coal and China, or coal generation in China, and uh, you wrote a piece that really caught my attention, or co- with a lead author back in January, uh, looking at an ambitious plan to phase out coal generation in in China. I thought we might start by uh, talking a little bit about how much coal generation capacity there is in China the uh, kind of a, a, and touch a little bit on the average age of it uh, how mu- and how much new capacity has been built and how technically efficient it is if you just wanted to talk a little bit about that basic framework. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I think uh, people commonly, I think the, the audience of this podcast like commonly know like China has a lot of coal, uh, but I think it's o- also... Um, overwhelming until you uh, hear about the numbers. So uh, China uh, has right now has over like a thousand coal power plants operating. Uh, That's about 3000 units. Uh, In terms of capacity, it has 1040 gigawatt by the end of 2019. Um, It's like larger than all the other countries combined around the world. So compared to the second place country, United States, it's like a four times of the size. So it's really a much higher level compared to all the other countries. Um, and also not only about the, the, the size, uh, the overall size, the overall magnitude of uh, the number of coal plants, 
another characteristic is like China's coal plants are very young compared to uh, the U.S. and the EU. Um, so the majority of Chinese coal plants are being built after 2005. So they are uh, supposed to have a, um, a couple decades uh, for uh, continued operation by design of their lifetime compared to what's in the U.S. and what's in the European Union. Um, those plants are uh, mostly built during the 1970s and 1980s. So by now, they are already approaching the end of their lifetime. So compared to that, the newly built Chinese coal fleet uh, are much larger in size. They have, um, they, they have higher efficiency. Um, so like, uh, they also have a lot of them uh, retrofitted with the uh, emission control technologies for local air pollutant emissions. So if you think about a high ambition coal phase out in China, the level of challenges are totally different um, than the other countries. They will have much higher uh, risk in stranded assets. Um, yes, so as you, yes. Mm-hmm. Y- yes, no, no, that, that's right. I, I, and I think, uh, you know, if I was just, it, 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 it re- basically requires, frankly, uh, China to say that, that this was a mistake, this incredibly rapid and massive build-up of an investment in coal-fired generation uh, that took place um, in the 2006 to 2012 period particularly, uh, in, in fact, is, is, was, was misplaced with the benefit of, of uh, hindsight. But at the same time, uh, the still ongoing investment for reasons that we've uh, talked about on this podcast a little bit before, that the regions still find, the regional controllers still find it advantageous. And I think uh, there's still about 150 gigawatts of new capacity being built, but some will retire. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. That is correct. Your numbers are uh, like a match is what I have. So I think in, in, in July, we, we have this uh, analysis looking at what's being uh, currently proposed or under construction. So I think the 150 gigawatt we have is including both our already started construction. Uh, that's 98 gigawatt and 53 are those already received uh, approval or like the official permits. And there's um, about 50 more that's under like even early stages of planning. So the, the, uh, the total kind of proposed, the 150 gigawatt we were talking about, that's uh, most likely to be, like more likely to be implemented during the next five years, during the 14th five-year plan. So I think that alone like represents a 15% increase from today's level. Um, yeah, so it's like there's uh, also we see some um, kind of backsliding uh, sign uh, in the early 2020. So let me take take a few step back. So for, for the during the uh, 13th five year plan, there actually a slowdown of the expansion. That's after 2015, which you mentioned the, the kind of the, the boom of the build is before the 2015 per- period. Uh, but after that, the, the expansion slowing down due to various reasons, we can um, get back in a bit. But I think the 2020 um, um, kind of the starting uh, a couple uh, months due to the economic impact from COVID, there's a research of 
uh, a plant that getting uh, approved by the official. Um, so I think uh, there there are some concerns that there's uh, uh, even kind of the the trend of new builds uh, start getting back in in 2020. So absolutely, there's still a lot of activities going on for for new for new plants. So, Rena, one thing we haven't mentioned uh, a little bit is about capacity utilization, which uh, mm-hmm. for the last few years for a coal plant has been about. 50%, I think, on average, and in the latest data I looked at was actually running below that uh, this year, but that's partly COVID. And uh, for our listeners, as it was explained to me years and years ago, the reason why, the, the most fundamental reason why capacity utilisation is relatively low is because nearly all the generation in China is in fact uh, coal generation uh, historically and so the plants have to be able to have a lot of spare capacity for the daily and seasonal flex up and down but now it's become uh, you know an economic sort of uh, break mm-hmm. or handicap uh, yeah I think the oh sorry no 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 go I'm oh, sorry I didn't really ask a question but uh, have I got yeah. that yeah, what? I think you're 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 right on the point. I think the the utilization level has been declining, and I think it's a, a indicator, a clear indicator of overcapacity, especially after the the 2015 uh, kind of cut. Like we see this utilization, it used to be at like a 5,500 hours level, and right now on on average is about 4,300. So it's like significantly dropped. Uh, so I think it's um, it's been um, kind of an indicator um, about overcapacity issue on the on the like a coal coal uh, power side. Um, I think that's also causing uh, a lot of the coal plants uh, kind of running at a loss right now. So the the entire sector is facing like a financial difficulties. Um, there's also uh, kind of the uh, development on the renewable um, renewable side, so there's um, competition on that side as well. Although there's uh, issues uh, for 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 integrating the renewable as well, but I think it definitely shows the um, the the existing plants haven't been utilized at at a high level of capacity. So it really brings the question why we are adding more really expensive kind of uh, the large plants for, for uh, that will operating for years. Okay, okay Rena. So I, I think we all agree on that. And I think electricity uh, consumption in China is still growing uh, at just in the last couple of months back to a mm-hmm. sort of historic 5 or 6% pace, which is quite reasonable. Uh, and there's, there's also growth in renewable capacity, a lot of it, which we can talk about and even and, and nuclear as well as that. But if, why, in your opinion, uh, just the, the real, well, actually, I'll come back. Why, is, why are there still building new capacity if it's not economically sensible? What c- Can you just briefly explain what the actual underlying reason is? Yeah, I don't, I think that's definitely a complicated story. Uh, and I, I will try to just bring my understanding into this. Uh, so I think there's a, uh, uh, kind of a balance between the central government and the local government. I think the, for the local government, they will uh, prioritize the economic development and also like uh, employment. 
so that can be uh, generated when you have a large coupons coming online with all the construction work, uh, maybe uh, last for two years that will bring uh, the, the job in the near term and also will bring tax revenue uh, for the local government. So I think it's uh, definitely uh, 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 still thinking about the, the near term kind of economic Ben, uh, short-term like a benefit from this investment, but not like thinking about the long-term kind of pathway that the the uh, the central government may have already laid out for for this low carbon transition. And also, I think the another argument I heard from the uh, from kind of the the uh, the the grade or the the grade industry or 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 the coal industry is like they want to have. Um, the coal plants to help integrate a renewable in China, uh, which I think is like difficult to to uh, to absorb at, at the first when you first hearing hearing it. But I think it's like uh, China don't have a lot of other uh, flexible um, kind of like the gas plant to help integrating uh, uh, the renewable into the grid. So the 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 idea is to have uh, more. Uh, coal plants that have the flexibility um, retrofitting technology that will uh, help um, putting more renewable into the grid and help maintain the grid stability. Um, sure, sure, I, sure, sure. Yeah. So, but I mean, China's also got nine percent uh, of its energy coming electricity coming from hydro. So, I mean, which is which is very flexible. And just very briefly, what about? I mean, one thing it seems to me is that it's pretty easy to get government money or state capital uh, to actually build a coal plant. Uh, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any financial penalty if a coal plant doesn't doesn't make any money. That's some, somebody else's problem. Yeah, I think there's uh, also um, um, an argument there uh, with the uh, uh, kind of the finance mechanism, like how how the, the coal bill being financed from the banks and uh, they are owned by the state-owned uh, companies. So like for those investors, they may not have the uh, kind of uh, having that uh, factor as their decision-making, like a first priority in their decision-making. So I think that's definitely play a, a role there. Um, yeah. So let's move on now to the uh... 14th plan and in just in the setting the context around the 14th five-year plan and, and the recent announcements by uh, the China, China, China's lead, leadership about uh, phasing uh, or uh, having a higher ambition for, for carbon reduction. But before, just in setting the context for that, can you talk a little bit about your understanding uh, of, of how strong, uh, I guess, the environmental lobby is or what sort of uh, internal sort of feeling there is within China about, I guess, the economics uh, and, and versus the environment and, you know, the, the sort of goodwill towards renewable energy, if that exists. And, and, and you know, I, I want to understand how, how, how people within China uh, perceive this to the best to, from your point of view. Yeah, there are definitely like a competing uh, multiple uh, kind of uh, priorities for for like a, for for the society. Uh, you mentioned uh, already a, a few of them, like the uh, one is the uh, kind of the environment or the quality of life, like public health, 
and uh, uh, climate change may be a longer uh, factor there. And on the other side, we have like economic and employment. Those are also um, the priorities that um, uh, people, um, uh, the government or the people are trying trying to uh, achieve. But I think that's uh, kind of a very um, like uh, how we perceived this question or this challenge traditionally. Um, but I think uh, we 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 should think about you know the the green growth story like uh, what are the new economic model that China can pursue that with all the um, energy system transition that will definitely uh, bring like a technological innovation and also create a new economic opportunities. But I think that haven't been uh, fully uh, well perceived like in China, even like across the world. I don't think it's like a fully understand or like a fully perceived by by uh, by all the people. Um, but I think another uh, I want to mention is the air quality concern has been a main driver in um, in China in like a phasing out the uh, small inefficient coal plants. I think another number is very interesting. Like the U.S. probably has been the largest uh, coal retirement region in the past few years, and China also retired uh, like a 38 gigawatt. Although compared to chi what China has in total, is a small portion. But in terms of like a, it, uh, uh, looking at across regions, it's not a, a trivial number. So that is driven by you know the air pollution uh, problem and how people want to uh, kind of address the air quality, human health uh, perspective. So the, the small, dirty, inefficient coal plants has been shut down a lot due to the, um, the, the, that, that yeah, reason. Yeah, and, 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 and the big ones have had uh, like the uh, SOx and NOx, the sulfur dioxide and, and nitrous oxide, uh, which causes the sort of particulate um, pollution. Right. That, they've been retrofitted with scrubbers and stuff to catch that. So that kind of issue, I think, and I think also there's been a, a, a sort of trend of actually moving the coal plants away from the population centres to out of Mongolia or wherever. Uh, so, uh, and I may have that geography wrong, but uh, in, in order to sort of hide the problem. Right. So I think that, that will kind of decline as an issue. So I'm actually interested in... in your perspective on where the balance of forces lies by the people that actually are going to make the policy like who in your opinion is in the ascendancy uh, uh who's, who's going to win this argument at the moment or is it going to be win one all at once or is it going to be a, a slow and gradual battle yeah i think the um with the 2060 carbon neutrality goal announced i think it's a definitely sending a very uh, strong signal, even though like uh, we are still missing the kind of the uh, concrete roadmap, especially for the near term, how we, uh, how China gonna achieve that goal. Uh, but I think it definitely have this uh, long-term signal like in, in people's mind and with the policy, um, with the policy planning. Um, uh, so I think it's definitely helped the conversation. So. Uh, I think be, I remember like in, in early January, I think that there's a, like a very strong voice about uh, the, the coal continue needs to be maintained as the um, kind of the basis for China's power system or the energy system. 
but I think that conversation has been uh, changed just with the new with with the new uh, uh, goal announced because people are seeing the long term vision of this, so they can start thinking about what needs to be done in the near term. And I think there's definitely have uh, changed the uh, conversation that we we need to first argue this needs to be done. Um, then change to now how we how we achieve the long term goal. I think that helped a lot. Um, yeah, in, yeah, yes, in, in that Marina, it, yes, indeed. And do you uh, know why President G actually made this announcement as opposed to why he <laughs> said he made it? You know, what 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 what's what's the re, what's the reality here? Yeah, well, I think that's a really big question. I wish I know like how the decision has been made, but I. I think there's um, definitely researchers or uh, like a research team behind like supporting the decision making in in that regard. Yeah. Okay, that's important to understand. And so it, yeah. essentially, that that research team, whoever they may be, actually has the has the ear of the of the president. I mean, he's listened to them. Um, and so when we come to the to the I guess fourteenth plan, what. Uh, what what's the state of play there? What policies do you expect to be announced that are either pro or uh, against coal uh, or and pro renewables? For instance, we've seen removal of sub subsidies for electric vehicles, just for instance, um, uh, and a winding down of the feed-in tariffs, as I understand it, for for solar and and, and wind. Uh, you know, what what policies are you looking for? Yeah, I think there are many kind of near term actions can be done, but what will be like a announced for the 14th five year plan that there's still uh, probably a lot of conversation going on uh, on the policy side. Uh, but I think for me, I, I feel like the, the most important is think about like uh, the, the no new cost strategy, uh, even though we have uh, maybe started from like a, a, a few regions or uh, uh, in the provinces that already see very low uh, coal plants utilization. I think uh, similar to, the, uh, to the, uh, the warning system they developed in, back in 2016 about which province are, uh, have high rates to build, uh, to build coal plants, I, I think, I think uh, like re-evaluate that policy and evaluate which province really um, should start thinking about the no new coal strategy and maybe um, by the end of 14th five-year plan like uh, like all the all the uh, the entire country can uh, adopt that strategy uh, and that's of course as uh, action early definitely um, will bring um, much more benefits um, I think the uh, for the for the other elements I really think um, what helps the um, renewable energy to be integrated into the grid is, uh, I mean, long term, definitely we will need a very um, advanced power system that has the uh, flexibility that including the modern grid infrastructure, you have the electricity storage and also have the smart demand side responses. Um, but I think for, for, for the near term, what we need to think about is uh, the, uh, the electricity market reform um, that can uh, move uh, eventually to a market-based dispatch um, and also um, 
that that can like have incentive for uh for for the uh for the renewable to be dispatched um and also lower the operation costs of the system um i think another thing um will be think about the the interconnection between the different regions because renewable definitely have a geographical imbalance in china that in the north and the west the provinces that have a lot of resources, but the demand is actually from the east of, uh, eastern provinces. So I think sure, the, sure, that, that's a standard problem all over the world. Uh, uh, but I mm-hmm. understood that uh, China's been taking the lead in in building a lot of uh, new transmission from the from the provinces, and a lot of it's been uh, DC transmission. Uh, can you uh, uh, can you just uh, do you understand? Uh, uh, you know, um, how much curtailment is there in wind at the moment and even solar? And actually, who controls what's dispatched uh, as opposed to what's curtailed? Is that the transmission operator? And I guess they, mm-hmm. as I, I think China's transmission company is the biggest single electricity business in the world. Uh, and yeah, what, that's what, right. Um, and I imagine it's a massive bureaucracy and really it's the actual centre of power. If, you, if I, you know, what, mm-hmm. what do you understand about what's going on there at all? Yeah, I think I I will just uh, provide my uh, a little bit of knowledge on this. I think the uh, you are absolutely right. It is controlled by the big uh, like a great uh, company like in China, and I think it is still uh, using kind of the planned um, allocation. Uh, um, so it's not based on economic uh, competitiveness of of, of this. And also, I think for the transmission line construction, they also uh, have, uh, usually have uh, like a large coal plant um, kind of come plan together with the transmission line planning. Um, but I think that should be actually planned around the, where the renewable resource is located. Um, so that uh, can really uh help the uh the the northwest region become like a really a provider of the clean uh energies so i think there's um uh, again kind of two pieces needs to be done like what was the market reform and also like the infrastructure um uh, planning around that hmm. and uh, uh and so just quickly, when when do we actually when do you expect the fourteenth plan, which I seem to have been talking about for about five years already? When do you actually mm-hmm. expect it to be announced in the actual policies? I think for the sector planning, uh, it usually came out in um, uh, probably twenty twenty one or early twenty twenty two. So it's like one or two years into the five year plan, you will have the uh, economy entire five year plan in. Um, announced at the very beginning but the sector plans usually came out uh, uh, one or two uh, one year later yeah so we're still going to have to wait a little while to see what the actual announcements are uh, we're getting to the end of our time Rena. it's been uh, very interesting and we've hardly even scratched the surface as you might imagine i just quickly one sector that's been concerning me for years is china's coal to gas sector because uh you know there were a lot of big uh uh, investments announced as usual and if they went ahead it was going to be you know more coal consumption uh and what is the state of play in coal to gas have you had a chance to have a look at that um yeah i'm not like a uh expert on on the gas sector but i think 
for China's case, um, it won't be a major player. Um, for one reason, like China don't have a lot of uh, cheap gas access. Uh, another reason, I think eventually just looking at, thinking about lo the long-term goal, like that even, even it, it may be a, like a, a, a bridge technology over, uh, for the near term uh, into the long-term goal. But I think um, eventually they will also have to be phased out all the fossil, fossil fuel-based uh, generation. Um, so I think I, I don't see like China have like um, uh, will uh, in, deploy a lot of gas plant uh, just based on, you know, the, the access or, or the economics. Um, yeah. Sure, sure. And then uh, one final question from me is just if we ha uh, you always have to look at the coal sector as well as the coal generation mm. sector. There's not actually that much employment in coal generation, but there probably is quite a lot of employment in coal mining. Mm. And co China's coal production has been stagnant for years and years, even as coal fuel generation has increased. Um, and so I suppose that means more imports as well as more efficient plants. And the costs of coal in China seem to be quite high by world standards. Um, so. Uh, do you do you keep an eye on 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 the on the coal sector as well? And uh, do you think there's any yeah. realistic chance of China increasing its actual coal production or getting its costs down? Or you know, or or mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that you're right on the point. Like uh, the employment from the coal mining sector is much bigger problem than um, in the uh, kind of the consumption sector, like the power. Um, I think. The uh, the employment in the mining sector already um, declining due to other reasons, like uh, because uh, because of uh, the improvement in productivity, for example, uh, through like a um, uh, shutting down of the uh, small or inefficient coal mines um, by by the government. So I think. For some traditionally uh, coal-centered economy, like in Henan province or like in the uh, the northeast provinces, uh, the coal mining jobs already declined um, uh, pretty fast, maybe by half. Um, I, I could be wrong on the number, but I think around that level for Henan or or Heilongjiang, those um, those those provinces, due to the the non-climate driven uh, uh, reasons. And also, I think China's uh, productivity on coal mining it's it's relatively low compared to other regions. Uh, regions. So there's a lot of potential for um, improvement in productivity. That will drive the uh, employment going down already. So needs to be prepared for for this just a transition question. Um, no matter you know, whether we think about the climate issues or not. But I think right now, also, we are looking at the, um, um, uh, the long-term goal. It definitely, it will be a, a challenge and also needs to be a focus of the policy. Um, yeah, so I think the, the, that's kind of come back to my um, uh, earlier point about thinking, what's the new economic uh, growth model that these regions can take? Um, you know, moving from a like a traditionally uh, very resource-centered 
uh, coal-centered uh, economy and to a more sustainable development um, pathway. Like so many of these issues, Rena, and we'll have to wind it up here, it's, it's easier to see the problems than the solutions in some times, but it's been very... Mm-hmm. Um, very useful talking to you and we appreciate your detailed uh, knowledge of the sector and I think as you say it's an integrated problem you you have to fix the coal problem and you know it's not very profitable electricity I mean in the end the prices of electricity that China is producing are not great for their manufacture for China's manufacturing based economy which really wants very low electricity prices but that's and can't get them because ultimately the coal cost and the capacity utilization uh, are, are barriers but anyway that that's my take on it Thank, thanks again Rena Kui, for 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 sharing sharing your insights uh, today yeah thank you for inviting me I really enjoyed our conversation and that was Rena Kui from the University of Maryland. Um, fascinating, um, David, to um, hear some sort of insights. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how China does actually manage that transition. I mean, it's talked about this sort of zero carbon or this sort of carbon neutral thing by 2060. I guess the proof in the pudding is going to be in that next five-year plan, which we, I guess we'll get to see in the next 12 months because that will reveal how serious they are about that. Yeah, yes, it will, but uh, it will. Uh, I don't think anyone's underestimating the scale of the task in front of China, uh, really, or uh, n- nevertheless, the will from the centre, uh, when it's very strong, uh, can't be ignored. It's just going to be difficult in all the provinces, as, as time has seen before, but uh, the economics, I think, are also working very much in favour of, uh, of coal struggling, and so that, 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 that too has to be accounted for. Well, we're starting to see a bit of a trend here. I mean, not just China, as we mentioned at the start of the podcast. It's uh, Japan has made very clear its desire to go net zero emissions by 2050. South Korea has followed this week. Uh, we've had the EU talking about its higher um, emissions targets by 2030. We even had the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson apparently urging Scott Morrison in a phone call this week to embrace the net zero um, emissions. But um, no sign that the Australian government's going to budge at this stage. No, I suspect uh, uh, Scott Morrison, to give him his due, could have asked Boris, well, when are you going to get the number of COVID cases down so we can go back to having a normal economy? I mean, I'm not putting too much emphasis on that particular phone call, although it's certainly a very welcome one to see. And there's absolutely no doubt that for all of Southeast Asia, uh, the, the European model is the one to look at, and even in the UK, they've been tremendously successful. Uh, one of the technologies that I think, Giles, is going to be very important, we won't talk any more on this podcast, for Southeast Asia in moving towards zero uh, uh, emissions, in, at least in terms of electricity, is the offshore wind industry. And we, mu- we must do some more about that because I think it's going to be one of the most exciting stories uh, of, the, of the next few years. But the other exciting story, as far as Australia goes, in 2020 has been firstly that we've had all this doom and gloom about uh, new wind and solar deals slowing down, but in fact they haven't. You know, on the numbers that uh, we at ITK count, I think there's been over three gigawatts of uh, total approvals this year, uh, which is uh, pretty darn exciting. When you think that you only need to get one and a half gigawatts a year uh, to get to 50% wind and solar by uh, of all energy electricity by 2030. Uh, but the other thing that's gone on, Giles, uh, is batteries. And we had another battery announcement today or this week. 
We did indeed, David. And last week, of course, we talked to Rick Francis from Spark Infrastructure, and he gave a hint of his interest in batteries. And of course, Spark Infrastructure are a major shareholder or a shareholder in Transgrid. And Transgrid followed a couple of days later by announcing, um, well, I guess it would be the biggest battery in New South Wales, because it'll probably be the first big battery that's built, because it seems to be well on the, in the way. Um, Transgrid will build it and will lease it out to Infigen Energy, and it's going to do a mixture of the normal grid services. It's going to do um, synthetic inertia, which I think is really interesting, and Infigen will also just use it as part of its general arbitrage and firming asset. Um, David, what do you think about the significance of Transgrid actually building this asset? Well, I, I think it's great. I think Transgrid and the New South Wales government, uh, and I think it's great for Matt Keane as well, who who was up on the soapbox again, uh, stating his position. And I think it's one that many of the Liberal Party are going to end up supporting uh, over time. We also saw today, just in terms of more data, a, a couple of surveys out um, um, uh, from the Australia Institute uh, and a survey by the New South Wales uh, government basically showing that uh, there is still this tremendous support for doing more action on climate change. And um, so Transgrid getting involved is, is, is pretty good, but there must be a dollar in it for them. Well, look, I guess there would be. Um, it's also one of about 11 batteries, I think I counted the other day, that have been... Um, uh, basically more or less committed in New South Wales. Uh, the New South Wales government has already announced funding for another four batteries done by people like um, CWP up at uh, Northern New South Wales with Goldwind and a couple of others. AGL's got that deal with Mao Neng to do another four big big batteries, 50 megawatts and 100 megawatt hours um, each. And, of course, they're planning their own big battery at Liddell. So uh, batteries were about to sort of spring up all over the shop in New South Wales. And um, what you were saying about those surveys, about the eagerness and the willingness of people to embrace this transition, and that's been underpinned, I think, by a whole series of international reports. I'm not too sure whether we touched on it last week, the International Energy Agency, which has finally done a 1.5-degree scenario as one of its core um, looks to the future, and that was very important because it talks about how you get to that, um, how you get to that target, which is which is critically important. Of course, wind and solar, and it described solar as the cheapest electricity ever, and solar will be king. That's been followed by Bloomberg NEF and their um, NEO, which is another important document which came out overnight, also talking about the amount that you need to invest. And just for the uh, fast transitioners, there was another interesting report by Tony Sieber, a futurist and uh, a disruptor, I guess you could call him as a specialist in there, and he's got an incredibly fast transition prediction of everything going renewables by around about 2030 across the globe with the possible exception of China, I guess, given what we've heard today in that podcast. But look, certainly what you say, David, is that the economics are turning. And I think that this is actually driving more ambitious analyses by private people, but also this big shift by um, international governments. When it comes to the market, I think there's going to be a real uh, realisation that there's going to be more wind and solar uh, plants built all over the world, but certainly in Australia. Um, and... and uh, 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 the point is that getting getting control of those assets is going to be a, a, a good thing to do. We, the market, if you just uh, look at the economics for a moment, the market's actually still reasonably fragmented, and I expect that um, uh, it'll tighten up over time as someone gets control over bigger and bigger shares of the wind and the solar assets, even, even though it's always easy to build another one. 
And a couple of other points to make out of the thing, as as uh, out of this whole process, which is going very much even faster. Uh, I think the the point that uh, was made by Kerry Schott recently that things are actually going quicker than most people realise is is really the point to focus on. But it's going to leave all those people that were betting on a slow change, such as AGL and Origin, um, wondering how they, you know, are they going to be able to take part in this at all, or are they going to be left right out in the cold? And similarly, we can see the federal government's gas strategy is um, struggling in a, in a lot of ways. It's struggling in a market sense. It's struggling because the domestic gas reservation scheme is going to be uh, really hated by the uh, domestic gas producers and, and not easy to implement. And the economics, as we've seen all these battery announcements, the economics uh, seem to be showing that at least in the daily peaking market, uh, batteries... Uh, uh, investors are increasingly seeing that, that batteries can be competitive with gas. We're seeing new battery plants. We're not really seeing new gas plants. Well, that's exactly right. And we've even had a new um, uh, progress on a major wind farm and battery storage project in um, Queensland, the Wombo project in southwest Queensland in the Western Downs region, 500 megawatts of wind, 50 megawatt battery with four hours of storage. So that's pretty interesting. David, probably time to wrap up because I think we had a um, quite a long conversation there with um, Rena. Um, I just want to make a point that before we get together again next week, we're going to have two quite critical elections. One in Australia, the uh, state election in Queensland, which um, between Labor and the LNP, who would like you to believe that um, all renewables are a hoax and uh, don't support a renewable energy target. So that's going to be interesting. Whichever way, we're going to have a new energy minister next week because Anthony Lynham has already um, declared that um, he will stepping be stepping aside. And of course, the US presidential election. And if Joe Biden gets up and wins, then that's going to be yet another big market and another major influence on global policy. And that could change many, many things. Have you got any, uh, you, you bold enough to make predictions for those two elections? Jones? No, I, I do have a wish list, David, but I don't want to make any predictions. Yes, no. <laughs> if, wishes were, if wishes were poodles, what a lot of poodles there'd be. Well, I'll, I'm going to. I'm going to be bold, Giles. I'm going to pip that Labor with the can get back in in Queensland, probably with the support of the Greens. From what I've read, Jackie Trad, the former treasurer, will lose her seat to the Greens in the inner city in Queensland. But that's a, I'm not at all confident about that. And uh, I'm going to put my hand up and say that the pollsters have improved. Everything I've read about the US election suggests that actually Biden is going to get up, no matter how much momentum he's got over this last uh, few days. But So that's my predictions. But I wish all our, uh, our, our listeners uh, uh, good luck with their predictions on whatever they may be. Absolutely. It's going to be fascinating to watch next Wednesday um, afternoon, Australian time to see uh, the results coming in. David, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for doing the interview today with Rena. And um, thank you all to our listeners. And thank you, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet 
so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy of the future.